Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Alexander William Salter, who is the Georgie G. Snyder Associate Professor of Economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. He has authored more than 70 academic articles and more than 250 popular articles. He is also the Comparative Economics Research Fellow at Texas Tech University's Free Market Institute and an Associate Editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. His most recent book, published in 2023, is The Political Economy of Distributism, Property, Liberty, and the Common Good, published by Catholic University Press. First of all, Dr. Salter, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Dr. Squires, and blessed Feast of St. Nicholas to you. Yeah, and, and to you as well. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to have a conversation today about the, the main topic of your book, distributism. What is it? Where does it come from? Why did it arise? Who are the main thinkers? What relevance does it have for us today? And and hopefully a, a few questions about you and, and your interest in this topic, why you decided to spend, I assume, years writing a book on it. So why don't we begin by uh, defining our term? What is distributism? Great place to start. I see distributism as more a political philosophy than an economic doctrine. You usually hear distributism defined as a school of economic thought, which holds that widely distributed private property is morally, ethically, politically desirable. I think that that's the right place to start, but the more that I researched and wrote about distributism, I realized that the distributist emphasis on private property, and distributists are big fans of private property, really comes down to social and political foundations. It's not a school of economic thought in the sense that it does not purport to describe, for example, how markets work, how prices are formed, how income is distributed among the factors of production, labor, and capital. And I think that that actually gives us a different point of emphasis for evaluating distributism. So definitionally, we have to look to the widespread and availability of private property and then conjoin that to supporting institutions like democracy and self-governance to really get a full picture and appreciation for the distributist project. And the sort of uh, end goal, I, I guess we could say, or the, the, the immediate end goal might be uh, sort of the common good, right? So it, in other words, it's not maximizing a profit, although the distributists, I don't believe, are against profit. 
Um, but but the common good is is an important factor here. So uh, what does the common good have to do with all this? What is it and how is it relevant? How does it play into the di distributist way of thinking? Well, classical distributism, and by that I mean the writings of G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, and their contemporaries who are interested in this question, are explicitly rooted in Catholic social teaching, specifically the social encyclicals that dealt with the consequences of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of democracy. And so what they're doing is they're taking Catholic social teaching and asking the question, how can we institutionally secure the foundations for the common good? The common good really is at the heart of the philosophy as defined as, for example, in the Catholic catechism today. So they're taking those moral and ethical teachings as given and then asking the question of what political and economic arrangements must we devise and institutionalize in order to get us a society that regularly yields this, where this is the desired end of Catholic social. But, but, but how would, so, and I want to come back to those men, Belloc and Chesterton in just a second, but, but how would they think about what is the common good? I mean, I'm assuming it's not the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Certainly not. It's definitely not a utilitarian conception. To them, the common good, and every authentic human community has a common good, the family, the polity, the nation state. The common good refers to the good of the group such that it cannot be reduced to the mere individual subjective welfare of its constituent members. Groups have a real ontological existence. We flourish as humans in community. And although as individual members we constitute our groups, those groups are not reducible to us. There's something more there. A family has conditions requisite for its flourishing. A neighborhood has conditions requisite for its flourishing. A nation has conditions requisite for its flourishing. And of course, it's necessary for the individuals who comprise those groups to also secure their individual goods. But there's also a social and communal aspect to this that allows those groups to flourish qua groups. And that really explains the distributist emphasis on, for example, private property. Because private property rights are viewed, this is actually something that you can find in uh, Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, as a means of practicing virtue, as a means of developing talents. But private property also has a social role in the sense of providing the means of democratic self-governance, governance by discussion and deliberation rather than top-down authoritarian control. So you can see the personal and the political very much go together here, not in the modern utilitarians and in a more holistic Catholic sense. Um, so most of your book deals with those two authors that you had, you had talked about just a second ago. So let's um, go a little bit more deeply into those two men. Uh, let's take them one at a time. Hilaire Belloc, um, what, what was his contribution to distribute him? What was his uh, central concern? Great question. Belloc is really the analytical theoretician of distributism, I think. If you read his works, they're very precise. He's very much the applied Thomist at work, thinking about, okay, here's private property. How does it work in a group? How do we make sure that uh, private property is maximally accessible? It's almost like reading an economic text. And you can tell from reading his works that he was at least conversant mainstream economics circa the early 20th century, although I don't think it's necessarily correct to label him as an economist. His important works that contributed to the distributist project are The Servile State and An Essay on the Restoration of Property. That first book explained why he thought that conditions in his contemporary England were tending towards servility. 
And he defines servility as a situation arising such that labor arrangements would completely break down. Labor markets would no longer be able to effectively allocate workers to productive tasks. And so the state would have to step in and actively direct workers to particular lines of production. And so that would necessarily be an infringement on human freedom. But Bellick, according to his view, saw so many tensions in existing industrial capitalism in England of the day that he saw no other alternative. Now, he wasn't endorsing that outcome. He was simply predicting. Moving on to the essay on the restoration of property, this is the work where he's basically saying, assuming that we want to avoid a servile state and assuming that we are accepted, uh, assuming that we are happy with neither the twin poles of plutocracy or socialism, what way is open to us to actually restore a humane social order founded on the widespread ownership of productive property? The productive households, small businesses, small enterprises, making sure that ordinary families have a stake in the social order. So you can almost think of Belloc's servile state as a diagnosis and the essay on the restoration of property as his prescription, what we do about that social malady. Yeah, reading that section in your book about his emphasis on property, I, I guess I had two sort of thoughts about that. Number one, I get, I felt a little bit guilty about not owning any property and guilty in the sense like I'm not living a fully flourishing human life because I don't have property. But the other thought was, you know, I have zero skills for doing things like plumbing and and, and electrical work. Um and so if I owned a house, especially that the house that I'm currently living in is from the 50s, so of course it has to have a lot of maintenance. My opposite, my, my other thought was, well, this wouldn't bring me to a life of freedom. Owning this would, in fact, would do the exact opposite. I'm now a slave to having to keep this thing up, uh, you know, spending my weekends, spending my evenings um, <laughs> with with basic maintenance. So I guess my question is, why in his mind is property related to freedom so much? And I guess a third point would be, isn't that sort of definition of freedom, uh, you know, sort of a freedom from restraint, kind of a Protestant way of thinking rather than a Catholic way of thinking of freedom as a freedom from the radical slavery of sin so that I can choose the good? I'm sure you could probably write a book on on those questions right there, but pick whatever one of those you want and and respond to it. Definitely. As an economist, I'm very happy to hear that question because one of the things it touches on is the division of labor, one of our most foundational concepts. How far should the division of labor extend? How far should specialization extend? Especially for scholars, and I'm in the same boat as you, I don't have any particular handy skills. I don't own anything that Belloc or Tushman really consider productive property. The closest would be capital assets and retirement account, but that's, of course, not at all what they're talking about. Right. It's very difficult to live this way. And if anything, it's become only more difficult to live this way. And I think that that's one of the tensions that we have to wrestle with. Because, of course, the division of labor allows us to further specialize and take advantage of each other. It makes everybody wealthier. The question is, are we giving anything up when we do that? Is there something that we're leaving out of the accounting of the cost and the benefit? Belloc, and for that matter, Chesterton would say, yes, they think that it's harder to maintain a free society, defined not merely as the absence of restraint, but also self-governing, mm. group participation in collective deliberative efforts, making sure that local communities actually are meaningfully autonomous, 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 excuse me, from broader <laughs> social groups. And this is the principle of subsidiarity, right? We want to make sure that governance actually occurs at the most local, feasible level possible. Well, how do we ensure that communities actually have a stake at resisting encroachment, even larger, more distant communities? 
according to Belloc and Chesterton, one necessary, although I don't think they'd say it's a sufficient condition, but one necessary condition is ordinary families, ordinary households have to have a stake in the social order. And that's what you get with small-scale property holdings. That's what you get with widespread property ownership. Provocative thesis, and it's definitely a way of thinking about freedom that is not merely freedom from, freedom to. Positive freedom is an essential component in this story. And if we don't take account of that additional margin, which contemporary conversations about freedom in today's American public square frequently overlook, we're just not going to understand what Chesterton and Belloc are talking about. We're going to lack the moral vocabulary to evaluate whether we think their claims are true or not. Anything else we need to say about Belloc before we move on to Chesterton? Read him. He's great. Uh, I have not read uh, uh, Belloc, but I have read Chesterton, though more his sort of theological works, I might use, uh, I guess you might say. Why don't we go ahead and move on to Chesterton? Uh, he was, I believe, influenced by Belloc, but had his own sort of stamp on this. So uh, what what cont- contribution did he make to, to this uh, question? If Belloc is the analyst, Chesterton is the artist. And for anybody who knows him and has read him, they can instantly understand this, since Chesterton seems utterly incapable of prose in the sense that even his prose is poetic Mm. the prince of paradox is always fun to read if if frustrating and difficult at times when he's writing on economic matters and political matters it's very much an ethical vision an ethical imagination that's guiding his pen so you're not reading an economic question one argument one reply but i say no chesterton's not in that ballpark he's very much crafting a compelling vision about the family, about education, about the moral and institutional prerequisites of a free and flourishing society that is largely complementary to Belloc. And I agree with you uh, in the sense that his theological writings, especially uh, and those were ultimately the works that allowed me to branch into these more descriptive works of Chesterton that are nonetheless uh, fanciful and at times playful. And I think mm. that that contrast with Belloc is, it makes for great reading, and it also opens additional dimensions or evaluating the claims. Uh, for both of these men, what did uh, the state, uh, how did they think about the state, and how did they think about the market? What role should the state play in uh, uh, this distributist thought, and uh, how did they embrace the market? How are they hesitant about the market? Obviously, if they're in favor of private property, uh, they're not Marxists. Uh, but how do they think about the state and the market? Distributists like markets and like states while simultaneously being skeptical of them both because of the pathologies to which they say that those two institutions of society will tend. Obviously, commercial exchange, free exchange is a good thing to distribute. They're worried about, for example, the distribution of income in a society not resulting in the conditions necessary for the maintenance of a free state. If you have a proletarian class divested of property, Chesterton and Belloc would argue, you're simply not going to get in the class of voters the conditions necessary for the maintenance of self-governance. And so they rely on the state to step in and actively maintain the conditions for supporting distributism. They don't think that there's any such thing as society by autopilot. And so although both men are small L liberals in the classical sense, I would, I would characterize them that way largely because they care about uh, They are not 
firm believers in the idea that there are automatic mechanisms by which society will regulate itself to the good. This is something that needs to be consciously crafted and pursued, and the government does need to be brought in to maintain the conditions conducive to distributism. So, for example, if capitalism on its own results in industrial concerns that are titanic and just too large to govern effectively, it's the job of the state to disincentivize that, maybe have a uh, graduated tax on bigness, maybe even break up enterprises, perhaps even state ownership of natural monopolies, do these sorts of things that make sure that the little guy has a fighting chance. Now, of course, the government is subject to pathologies, too. They recognize the problem of kleptocracy and corruption. They recognize that corrupt market arrangements are frequently downstream from corrupt uh, business arrangements. As one of the reviewers of my book pointed out, I have missed an opportunity to quote Chesterton when he wrote in one of his other works, it's truly a tragedy that more members of parliament are not hanged. And if you read <laughs> Chesterton, you know exactly what he's talking about. So while they recognize that markets and states are both necessary for the good, flourishing free society, they have no romantic blinders on in the sense that they don't think that markets are automatically going to produce the best outcomes. They don't think that politics, even democratic politics, are going to produce the best outcomes. So concerned citizens need to actively involve themselves in public life to maintain these institutions in the way that is conducive to human flourishing as envisioned by Catholic social teaching. I would describe distributism maybe as a, a subset or a subcategory of Catholic economic thought. Uh, how does distributism fit in the, maybe we can call it a jigsaw puzzle of the larger landscape? So uh, Belloc is fo primarily focused on uh, private property. Uh, Chesterton, as you say in the book, we could call it a sort of a focus on home economics. Um, so those are sort of narrow, narrow, narrowly focused interests. How do those interests, distributist interests fit into the larger picture of Catholic economic thought? Well, it's really interesting that today in segments of Catholic intellectual circles, we're having this debate about common good capitalism. Uh, in 2019, famously, Senator Marco Rubio gave a speech at the Catholic University's Bush School of Business, where he, start, where he started advocating what he calls common good capitalism, not an abolition of markets or even anything like State, but nonetheless, using public policy to reorient market economies to the common good. And I think that that's the motivation for why I ultimately wrote this book, because I saw distributism as one way of imagining, envisioning, and perhaps even institutionalizing common good capitalism. As an economist, I can look at markets and how they work, how prices are formed, what determines the distribution of income. I'm very much a classical believer in the positive normative distinction in the sense that I can talk about how the world in fact does work without necessarily making any commitments or claims about the way that the world ought to work. So I can talk about how markets determine wages while also realizing that we may not be giving workers their due if that's all we do, if we just let markets work unoperated, uh, un unacted upon and, and refuse to augment that with any sort of public policy. So I think the way to address these questions is to bring good, hard-nosed economics to bear to analyze what markets and governments actually do. But then we also need to turn to a broader political economic philosophy, a social philosophy that can help guide us in thinking about how can we reorient these processes so that they're actually shoring up crucial foundational institutions rather than undermining them. That's, I think, where the project is right now, and that's what I'd like to see. 
Uh, how how do these men say that we can practically bring about this vision? Is it even possible, or is this just a, a, an intellectual exercise? It's definitely not just an intellectual uh, exercise to Belloc and Chesterton. They very much called for public policies that would maintain widespread ownership of productive property. Belloc, for example, wanted a graduated tax on business. Basically, the larger the, your business concern got, there would be a sort of progressive tax on the size of the enterprise so that getting even bigger becomes increasingly costly. Chesterton was in favor of land redistribution, ensuring that people had access to land so they could at least have that option. Uh, they, could, they could go back to the land. There's very much a strong quasi-romantic attachment to agrarianism in early 20th century history because if you read their work, there are all sorts of programs that they actually advocate to bring about the kind of society that they want. I don't think that we can uncritically translate that to today's policy landscape. I think that we have to think harder about how we would take the distributist concerns, the distributist goals for widespread productive property, and think what kinds of policies can we actually support today that would give us widespread property ownership, give the average family a stake in the social order? This is a much harder question because there's been an economic sea change in what economies look like now versus 100 years ago when Chester Tender Belloc are writing. Uh, land is much less important as a source of national income. Finance and other intermediate production services are a much more important source of coordinating production and distribution. So if we're looking at American political economy and wanting to do something like common good capitalism, I don't think that we can uncritically take the just proposals from 100 years ago and say, let's just do this. I think that's probably going to do more good. As to what we should be doing, again, that's a much tougher question. There's probably a way to think about the graduated tax on business. You could probably conversation to conversations on corporate tax rates. There's all sorts of things perhaps you could do at the state and local level. I think that we shouldn't undermine uh, or overlook the ability of American federalism to deal with some of these problems since more local solutions are going to be more commensurate with capitalism in terms of subsidiarity. But it's definitely going to require some imaginative political entrepreneurship to take that vision distributism and actually implement it. That's the hard thing to figure out today. And something that I don't talk all that much about in the book, to be frank. Uh, I'm sure there are secular economists, both Marxists and capitalists, who would take issue with some or maybe even all the central aspects of distributism. Uh, but I'm curious, though, if there are other Catholics who would make specifically Catholic arguments against it. In other words, especially because these men are so focused on specific issues, as I mentioned, the uh, private property question and the home economics question. Would there be another Catholic economic expert who would say uh, who, who would critique distributism based on Catholic principles? Yes, I've had some Catholic economists uh, critique distributism as presented in my book. And the argument, there are several arguments. The most prominent one looks something like this. In order to actually get a distributist economy in contemporary affairs, in today's, today's uh, landscape, you would need to empower governing authorities to act largely discretionarily and perhaps arbitrarily. And doing that would necessarily do violence to human persons. You would necessarily be them and their possessions as pawns on a chessboard. And while you would, of course, want to create from the bottom up the conditions that can result in flourishing of the common good, to actually try and do this politically 
given what we know that the political process is actually like, is simply going to give those with power an opportunity to misuse the power and abuse the men that we're trying to help. So that's probably the most common argument that we frequently hear. I don't think that it's uniquely a Catholic argument. You can find that sort of skepticism about power in, in many schools of thought, but I have had and heard Catholic economists who are sympathetic to the project nonetheless wonder when the rubber actually hits the road, how can we do this in a way that will do justice to the human person rather than doing violence? Mm -hmm. um, I, I've just described it as a sort of a subset of Catholic economic thought, uh, which ushers in the, the main thinkers that we've been talking about from the early 20th century. And as you just mentioned a minute ago, that the economic realities of the 21st century today are different from the early 20th century. And so you said that that specific policies uh, would have to be different or augmented in some way compared to the policies that uh, Chesterton and Belloc envisioned. But maybe that also just ushers in a sort of more fundamental question uh, because of these, the, the economic realities are different now compared to then. Uh, does this even does does distributism even have a relevance in the 21st century today, or are the economic realities so different that it's uh, you know historically dated? I think it does have an economic relevance, even though figuring out exactly how to make it policy relevant is a challenge. That doesn't mean that the enterprise is not worthwhile. If you believe what the distributists are saying about the relationship between private property and human flourishing, you can't let it fall by the wayside. You need to find ways to make reforms to the political and economic game such that ordinary households, ordinary families are greater beneficiaries of the bounty of our economy and have a meaningful stake in the social order. That's often one of the big problems confronting today's landscape. People feel alienated, not just from markets, right? This isn't just a sort of quasi-Marxist alienation. production. People feel that public institutions and processes, the government, which is nominally responsible to them, is in practice completely insulated from public oversight. One reason for that might be the state has become so autonomous because ordinary people lack the means to discipline it. And one of the reasons that ordinary people lack the means to discipline it is because they have no economic power to craft their own lives and provide for them and their families. They're dependent on somebody else's women well-being, and so they have no real means to resist. Their next best alternative to whatever is going on right now simply leaves them no power to actually affect something at the bargaining table. That's a critique to which I'm sympathetic. I think that if you do look at political and economic processes today, there's a reason that so many people are unhappy with how things are going. There's a reason that so many people seem to want some sort of radical change. I think that there's a reason that you do find more and more people interested in a common good version of capitalism. So these are conversations that are worth having. I don't think that we should dismiss distributism out of hand as purely a flight of romantic fancy from 100 years ago that has no contemporary relevance. That would be the wrong way of thinking about it. It will be a challenge to figure out what we can actually do to take this vision and embody it in current political and economic practices, but nothing worth doing is easy. Of course, it's going to be hard. Mm. It was hard 100 years ago. It's hard today. It doesn't mean we should be thinking seriously about it. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about ways of doing it. When Rubio and others talk about common good capitalism, um, what... Uh, one thing that comes to mind is, and maybe this isn't what Rubio has in mind, but but 
what he is touching on as the problems in sort of classic Reagan economics uh, is what maybe not so much on, on well, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say this. Um, Rubio doesn't necessarily have this in mind, but maybe what has been translated on the ground is populism. So I guess the question is, in my mind, is what would the difference be between, in Rubio's mind, of what common good capitalism is uh, from sort of the protectionist uh, impulses of populism? Like, okay, yes, we like the free market in a sense, but when you know, if you're a coal miner or you're you're a factory worker and your job gets shipped to China because it's cheaper to build cars in China than it is here, that arguably is the impulse behind populism. Um, so I guess, is there any sort of relevance or connection between those two ideas? Is populism a sort of popular way of attempting to get at what Rubio is tr- wants to get at with common good capitalism? In a sense, I think that there's some overlap. I think when you look at populism, at least in an American context, it largely rests on widespread, frequently intuitive recognition of some social problem, but it does not necessarily come with an agenda for how to solve that problem. Mm. There's anger, there's outrage at real injustices, but beyond that, there doesn't seem to be much of a positive governing agenda. But I don't it, think that that's necessarily that's not necessarily a bad thing because I don't think it's responsible. I don't think it's reasonable to act uh, expect an out, unemployed factory worker to have a twelve point plan and a white paper that is going to be published by some think tank. That's not how the democratic process is supposed to work. We're always going to need political entrepreneurs. We're always going to need leaders who are capable of recognizing the just claims of the populace and crafting that into a positive governing agenda that can address crucial Mm -hmm. social problems. So I see Rubio and others' common good capitalism as one possible governing agenda that responds to the problems identified by populism, which itself is something that actually has uh, a pedigree in American politics and American history, right? Going back to the founding, not long after that, you have Andrew Jackson, of course, you have William Jennings Bryan in the late 19th, 20th centuries. This is not something that is foreign to the American experience, but without that guiding hand, without the positive governing agenda, it can devolve into just anger for anger's sake. And that's something against. Even though a factory worker may not have a white paper, wouldn't the populists say that it's not just their their position is not simply a question of anger, but that they do have uh, at least a general um, positive. Uh, governing model and in general that would be uh protectionism to protect the uh jobs of these people so you know to 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 use the politically charged phrase to put america first right to write policies that put america first so that american jobs this is what as i understand it would be their thinking don't go to china so isn't it more than just anger that they have at least a a general vision of policies that are constructed at the governmental level that protect American jobs. That is the goal. I think when you look under the hood, though, a lot of these are not very well thought out. I think that even the so-called policy responses are more just impulses rather than things that are arrived at through serious discourse and serious study. I'm not saying that, so just to disclose my own personal views of these things, I'm largely a free trader or I'm largely a free market guy, which is one of the reasons writing about distributism was so interesting. 
But when we're talking about the question of America first job specifically, the whole question becomes, can that call for tariff protection actually deliver on the outcomes that the people who want those things say they can? And this is the reason that I think hard-nosed economics is a necessary but not sufficient part of any reform agenda. Because I think that we have reasons to be skeptical that the people who say that this is a solution are actually going to result in those solutions. If you go and look at manufacturing employment since the 1970s, right, it's definitely true that it's much lower as a share of the population than it If you look at manufacturing output, though, we're near all-time highs. It's been steadily growing for the past 40, 50 years. The reason for that is the manufacturing landscape in the United States has changed from being relatively labor-intensive to relatively capital-intensive. If you look at the source of where those manufacturing jobs went, the popular narrative is, again, they've all been shipped to China or somewhere else in Southern Asia or Well, no, actually for every 10 manufacturing jobs that the United States lost, eight of them were lost because of general technological improvements that economized Mm. on labor. Only two were shipped out. Now, maybe maybe you could argue even that is too many. Maybe even that is an unacceptable cost to pay. But if you realize that even if we had a strictly protectionist tariff in place, we're probably going to see technological improvement and investment and labor-saving technology anyway. So it's still going to be the case that 80% of those jobs would have gone away. Yeah. Let's also keep in mind that if we have a general protective tariff, well more than half of what we import by value is itself intermediate goods and services that American companies use to produce things here. Mm-hmm. So if you implement a general protective regime, you're also raising costs for American businesses. And so maybe you can save a job in the steel industry by having a steel tariff. But that's going to come at the cost of jobs that steel adjacent industries that take imported steel and use them right here to turn steel into an output. When you go and crunch the numbers, it looks like that we're spending somewhere between you know eighty and one hundred twenty thousand dollars for every single job saved in the steel industry. Is that a good deal? Well, that depends on the social value. I don't think that you can outsource your moral thinking to the cost-benefit test. I'm actually mm. unconventional as an economist, and I think that economic efficiency is not a very interesting or useful moral standard. Mm. But at least it helps us talk about these trade-offs in a reasoned and way. When I look at arguments about America first, when I look at arguments about international trade, again, I largely see people who have legitimate concerns with the way the world is working. But if you just say, have a tariff, have protection, you have to actually do the hard work of analyzing the effects of those policies and whether there's going to be, is there actually going to be an on-net employment gain? Mm. If it turns out that we lose more jobs in import competing sectors and we gain in import protecting sectors, I don't see how that's winning America first strategy. Mm. So that's why I do think that you need a positive governing agenda that is informed by sound economics, but it is not reducible to sound economics. That reminds me of because uh, I think you're absolutely right about the the technological advancements, and I, I often think that the public discourse has has been incorrect on this when the argument is often made. And I again, I was just simply quoting what the argument was that it's my job's going to China. I remember this was about three weeks after Trump won the 2016 election. I was living in Kentucky at the time, and I went to uh, get a tour of a and of a brewery, uh, not a brewery, a, a distillery uh, of bourbon. There had been a distillery on that same location using the same uh, facilities 
uh, but that closed in the 90s. And then it just had recently reopened, uh, you know, just a couple of months before I took my tour. And the woman that gave me the, and this other man a, a tour uh, <clears throat> sort of proudly proclaimed that the older uh, uh, distillery, it took about 350 people to run it. And she proudly proclaimed. Uh, and now with this new distillery, it only takes 85 people to run it. And my response sort of was, well, and that's why Donald Trump won the election. Um, she looked at me strangely, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, again, whether the, um, uh, whether the argument is jobs going across the sea or jobs being lost to technological advancements. Again, I would just simply say that there's more than a, uh, a an anger here, that there's at least some, uh, thought put behind what um, what the solution could be. It's interesting that you bring that yeah. up. I think that mm -hmm. that's a really good point because think about how the economist, the standard Econ 101 textbook would look at that, right? We had a factory that required 300 people approximately to produce a given volume of output. Now with technological improvement, we have that same volume of output, but now we only need 80 or 85 workers. What happens to the remaining workers? Right. Well, the standard economic answer is we've done a good thing because we've lowered our costs. Uh, mm -hmm. Here, good doesn't necessarily mean morally desirable or defensible, but in the sense of like consumers would like it because costs would go down. And that mm -hmm. means that we have workers freed up who can then find other valuable lines of employment and produce other goods and services. So this is a mm -hmm. way of actually increasing total wealth. Okay, fine. It's true that if you come across labor-saving technologies, you release employment that can be found elsewhere. What does that mean for a 45 or 50-year-old worker who is now unemployed, who might not actually have the skills necessary to find sufficiently remunerative work in another line of production? What do we do about that person? And what do we do about that person, especially given that for at least the last 80 years, most Americans have held that the federal government of the United States has a responsibility for employment in some way, right. right? In the sense that we're at least going to put a floor under you and not let you fall below a certain threshold. Yeah. We're not going to allow unemployment or disemployment or anything like that get too out of hand. These are political problems, and mm. you cannot solve political problems by postulating economic solutions. Likewise, you can't solve economic problems by positing political solutions. You can't just wave yep. your hands and assume that the government is always going to do exactly what you want it to do, and it's going to solve your economic problems in a way that's cost-effective and accountable. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of times people who are focused on the politics are, are missing the economics, but also people who focus on the economics are missing the politics. And you yeah. need both of those to harmonize if you're going to find what economists call a stable or equilibrium solution, which is just a fancy way of saying a durable and sustainable solution. Uh, on another note, and, and this might be completely unrelated, but I followed fairly closely, and this is not like me. I'm sure you probably did this, though, the Sam Bankman-Fried trial. And through that, I learned, like a lot of people, for the first time, the, the term effective altruism. And, uh, you know, we don't have time to get into the whole thing here. But one of the fundamental principles that I understand effective altruism is the idea of looking at sort of on a global level, right, that they want to address sort of global existential issues. So that's big things like, you know, um, pandemics or nuclear uh, catastrophes or uh, asteroids coming in, you know, 
landing on the planet and killing everybody. So while I was, and I bought the Michael Lewis book, which I never do that, and I read it. Um, so while paying attention to that and, and hearing about effective altruism and, and their focus on the sort of the macro level, I often thought to myself, hmm, I wonder what Belloc and Chesterton would say about that, especially with their focus on on the, the local, the idea of, of subsidiarity. So uh, this is never a fair question, but I like to ask it. What do you think Chesterton and Belloc would say about effective altruism? Chesterton, in one of the books, uh, his writings that I survey in my own book, has a great line. This is not going to be an exact quote, but it's something along the lines of, I encounter these people all the time who profess a passionate love for humanity, and yet when it comes to actual flesh and blood persons, human beings, they have nothing but contempt for them. Mm, it's like very that. easy to love an abstraction. It's really yeah. hard to love actual people. Right. I think that that's exactly what they would say about effective altruism. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if by the way, if you wanted someone to defend effective altruism, I'm definitely the wrong guy for that. Since I'm not sympathetic <laughs> to that worldview or anything at all. Okay. But I think Chesterton has him dead to rights. Yeah. In that sense that it's just it's a combination of wanting reducing the good to something so sterile and abstract that it doesn't actually require anything so icky and parochial as contact with other human persons. And it largely seems to be a way for idiosyncratic, clever people to indulge their rather particular moral preferences without thinking too hard about the consequences of their actions. Yeah, and, and I don't want to get too psychological, but it, from the, the Lewis book, Sam Brankman-Fried himself says, you know, I, I don't have a capacity to deal with people, whether it's some sort of, you know, psychological issue or what, you know, it's not for me to say, but he, he himself says that, like, I don't know how to deal with people. Uh, so in that sense, that that sort of Chestertonian quote, effective altruism allows him to do just that, just that idea of not having to deal with those people that he himself says he right. has an incapability of dealing with. Of course. And what we're talking about here is the ethical standard proposed by effective altruism, right? To the extent that someone like SBF uh, has, a, has a mental health condition or perhaps a personality condition, that's, of course, sympathize with, pray about. We should mm. never, we should never criticize that or chastise that. But insofar as they're saying, look, this is the moral ideal which right-thinking people should embrace, I frankly say to hell with that. That's topsy-turvy. Yeah. That's upside down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, a couple questions about you, if I may. Um, you say in your book explicitly that you're not Catholic, you're Orthodox. Um, uh what about this Catholic uh, social thought draws you um, as a non-Catholic? And what aspects of distributism uh, do you think might be appealing to other people who aren't Catholic or maybe even people who aren't Christian? Um, you know, a lot of people just dismiss this right off the bat simply because it's Catholic. Um, but, you know, just because it's Catholic doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to say. So, so how might we argue uh the, the virtues of this way of thinking even to people who aren't catholic or even christian i think the phrase that i use in my own book uh if i remember correct correctly is that it is uniquely but not specifically catholic in the sense that if you understand catholic social teaching you know exactly where distributism is coming from but you do not have to be a catholic to appreciate the underpinnings of distributism and really my own exploration of distributism as catholic social teaching is part parcel of my conversion story, I should say reconversion story to Christianity. I drifted away from the faith in college 
started taking Christianity seriously again in graduate school, uh, two works that were hugely influential on me were Chesterton's theological writings. I still reread Everlasting Man, uh, every Advent, and Orthodoxy every Easter. Those are those are beautiful works which I would recommend to all of your listeners. And so from that, and learning reading Chesterton and reading about Chesterton, I came to uh, his influence, the influence that Hilaire Belloc had on him. And then I started reading their political and economic writings. So that's really how I got into distributism avenue following my coming back to the faith. And so in that sense, you could say it was a happy accident. But the more that I read about Catholic social teaching, the more I thought there are some really interesting institutional claims here. Because if you take seriously the ontological and anthropological claims about the common good, that it follows from the nature of what kind of beings we are as persons and what kinds of communities we form, what it necessarily means to flourish as a human being in community with other human beings, then you immediately confront the delicate question of, okay, how do we structure our political and economic institutions such that we can actually get these things? Right away, that's the conversation that distributism was talking about. And the more I read about discretism, the more I thought that economists were dismissing it too quickly. Now, it's true that the distributist authors, Chesterton and Belloc, make many claims about the ways that markets work that I don't think uh, withstand critical scrutiny. But again, if you dismiss distributism simply because they say things about the laws of economics that we now know are not true, you're missing the point. It's not an economic school of thought. It's primarily a political philosophy or at least a political economy, which has a vision for the institutional foundations of human flourishing and the common good. That's what we need to take seriously. And I forget your second question. Was it about uh, what non-Catholics can appreciate about distributism? Exactly. Or even just non-Christians. In other Christian traditions, right, there's lots of things that are that are tangential to this. If you look at, for example, the writings of uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, Dutch prime minister, politician, and economist, early 20th century, late 19th century, he wrote very convincingly about uh, ideas that he called sphere sovereignty, making sure that workers were respected in the political and economic process. So Christian social democracy, I think, especially as it's practiced in Europe, even in its Protestant iterations, has a lot of overlap with distributism. So if you're coming from a reform tradition or some other Protestant tradition, the tools and techniques are definitely there to appreciate this. And even if you're not Christian or even if you're not religious at all, many secular people would look at how politics, economics, and society look today and understand something is not quite right. It's not good that the family is in as bad of shape as it is. It's not good that political and economic processes seem to have lost their basic accountability. So something has gone wrong here. And I think that as long as you can acknowledge that our prosperity depends not just on markets doing their thing, but a whole network and array of civil society institutions, the most important of which is the family. And unless those institutions are going right, we're going to have a lot of problems. That's the inroad. That's, I think, where you can look at distributism and say, hey, I might not necessarily buy the theological underpinnings of this, but you know what? They're saying a lot of interesting things about why things seem to have gone head over heels and what we can do about it. Last question. Um, we as Christians are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. When you think about all the economic problems today um, 
and and the different answers that we're given distributism is is one um, what gives you hope that is the ultimate question isn't it you're right it does come down to the resurrection christ is risen everything flows from that i think that there's a growing recognition and this is not specifically about distributism this is really a more broader uh, a more broad and basic concern i think we're beginning to question whether it's really possible for us to siphon off or cordon off our faith when we deliberate in the public square. So I think in recent years, there's been this misapprehension that public neutrality in the American context necessarily means that you leave your Christianity at home when you deliberate public affairs, when you go to vote, do these sorts of things. I think we're seeing the fruits of that. And the fruits of that are not good. It comes from a tree which is fundamentally not good. Christ is king over everything, which means that we cannot disregard him when we act as citizens in public. And so insofar as we're being more conscious about a public revival of Christianity, again, not instrumentalizing the faith, not saying we want a faith that helps us be better at politics or anything, but recognizing that these fundamental commitments that we have can and should affect how we deliver as citizens, what kinds of public policy positions we can and should pursue, and that maybe America's fundamental governance tradition, natural rights, limited government, federalism, maybe these commitments are not so easily severed from historic Christianity that they cannot be sustained or maintained except in a society that recognizes the patrimony that they have in Jerusalem, as well as supporting traditions, uh, Greek philosophy, Roman law, English prudence, these sorts of things. I think that people are beginning to recognize that they have discarded and ignored too much in their patrimony, most uh, the most important thing being the social kingship of Christ. And if we can get back to that, I think that we'll have a stable foundation for how we can fix these problems. Again, the book is called The Political Economy of Distributism, Property, Liberty, and the Common Good by Alexander William Salter. Dr. Salter, thank you again so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was my pleasure, Dr. Squires. God bless you and yours. Thank you. Our culture is in a crisis, and the solution to that crisis is the gospel message. St. John's Seminary, the seminary of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, offers an online MA in pastoral ministry degree for anyone interested in receiving formation for ministry. This program helps students improve their knowledge of the Catholic intellectual tradition and develop practical skills for ministry. A studio with professional video, audio, and lighting equipment allows our students to have an enjoyable technological experience, a necessity for any online learning environment. Anyone who is working in and around the Roman Catholic Church in North America needs an education like this. There's no way you could get this kind of education anywhere than at a seminary. Our online Master of Arts in Pastoral Ministry offers you the chance to continue your education in ministry and designed to provide you with the knowledge, spiritual formation, and practical skills that you need to serve the family of God in our parishes, schools, and other ministries. By grounding yourself in the intellectual tradition of the Catholic Church, you will be able to go out into this culture and leaven it with the good news. 